Well, we're in 1 Kings, chapter 17. Kings 17 and verse 2. Now we've seen Elijah kind of come onto the scene out of his predestined nowhere. Um, and he's been to Ahab and he's given the great declaration there'll be neither dew nor rain these years and uh, so we've done verse 1 and we've done well and tonight we move on to verse 2 and we read simply this and the word of the Lord came to him now that believe it or not is as far as we're going to get tonight all right and the word of the Lord came to him. Now, as we go through this series, we're actually going to be saying quite a lot about the whole area of guidance. And here we hit it, and the word of the Lord came to him. And uh, and there's one main point at this particular juncture in the series that we have got to understand and really underline in our thinking, because it's foundational to everything else that we're going to be saying in this series about guidance. And what you've got to understand is that there is a fundamental difference between Old Testament prophets such as Elijah and you and I today as believers. Now, vitally important to understand that. You can't just go into the Old Testament and sort of like, well, guidance, right, we'll go through the Old Testament and sit there waiting for the word of the Lord come to you, like the phone ringing, all right? Because there is a fundamental difference that exists between the prophets in the Old Testament and us today, and we've got to understand it. Uh, Go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And first of all, we're going to read verse 12. And Paul says this, For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, go down to verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Now, what you've got to realise is that the church, the body of Christ, did not exist before Pentecost. The coming into being of the church of Jesus Christ at Pentecost was the coming of a new order, as opposed to the old order of the Old Testament. Now, you see, the thing is, for us as believers, Each one of us are supposed to be living our Christian lives as part of a corporate family of believers in a locality. And God's plan for us is that we live out our lives in corporate relationship and accountability to the body of which we are a part. I.e., your individual relationship with God which being part of a biblical church will enhance and increase, is in the context of a corporate group of other people's individual relationship with him. 
So the point is that you and I, as Christians, the moment we're born again, the Holy Spirit actually baptizes us into the body of Christ. And we live out our Christian lives, lives in the context of relating to other believers around us. So then, what we've got is this. Our position before the Lord, as those who are part of the church, is different from Elijah's and Old Testament people's position because the church, the body of Christ, did not exist before Pentecost and therefore the Old Testament is pre-body of Christ. Now what that means is this, the Old Testament prophets were in a lone wolf relationship with God and their ministries were lone wolf ministries as well. Can you see the difference? They were without the body of Christ because there was no body of Christ for them to be part of. Their relationship with God was individual full stop. Ours as part of the body of Christ is individual plus corporate. And also, the New Testament apostles and prophets were in a similar situation as well, you see. Now then, the point is, the Old Testament prophets were without the body of Christ, they were without the completed scriptures, because they only had parts of the Old Testament, and that's why I say the apostles and prophets were in the New Testament were in a similar thing because they didn't have the completed New Testament okay so the point is the Old Testament people were without the body of Christ and they were without the completed Word of God therefore the Lord related to them in the context of that situation no body of Christ no completed Word of God and so the way that God dealt with them when it came to guidance was quite simply this he gave them a hotline to himself. Can you see? The only thing they could have had was a hotline to God. And indeed, as we go through Elijah, oh boy, are you going to see the hotline that Elijah had to God? But what you've got to realise is that Elijah's position was fundamentally different to ours because he was not part of the body of Christ and he didn't have the completed scriptures. So therefore, when we're talking about Old Testament people, all right, the prophets, their status was this, no complete Bible, no church of Jesus Christ to be part of, therefore a hotline to God. That was their status. No complete Bible, no church, therefore a hotline to God. Now our status as Christians in the New Testament phase of things is we have the completed Bible plus we have the church, the body of Christ. Therefore no hotline to God. Now can you see it's one or the other. Old Testament prophets like Elijah they had a hotline to God or they had nothing. It was all they could have had. Whereas for us, no hotline to God because we have the completed scriptures and we have the body of Christ. So then, therefore, let's ask a basic question and you'll see how this sort of pans out. What were the tests in the Old Testament 
for someone to pass as a prophet. So the Old Testament, they said, look, if someone arises and he's going to be a prophet, here are the tests, all right? Now, it was twofold. The first test for a prophet in the Old Testament, whether or not he was genuine, was simply that his prophecies had to come true. So the first test was a test of time. Obviously, if people came, I'm a prophet of the Lord God of Israel, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, the test was, okay, buddy, let's leave it and see if it does. So that was the first test. The prophecies had to come true, or they were considered to be false. And Elijah, as we're going to see, passed that test, no problem. But the second test in the Old Testament was simply, uh, I mean, because obviously the problem is that evil spirits can inspire even prophecies about the future, can't they? The counterfeit gift. So the second test was this. If you go to Deuteronomy, we'll actually read it, Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13, and we'll read the first three verses. Now, this is in the law of Moses. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 13, and uh, we'll read from verse 1. We have this. If a prophet arises among you, or a dreamer of dreams, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder which he tells you comes to pass, so there's the first test. The prophecy must come true, test number one. But look at the second test. And you've got, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. So here what we're seeing is that there was a twofold test to establish whether uh, someone who claims to be a prophet in the Old Testament was genuine or not. Test number one, their prophecies had to come true. Test number two, were they leading you into faithfulness to God or were they leading you to idols? All right, so that was the test. Are the prophecies coming true? Are they leading you into idolatry? Now then, certainly we're going to see Elijah pass test number one and he passed test number two as well because he led Israel back to the Lord from idolatry. All right, but you see the thing is that those two tests are very, very basic. When you get to the New Testament, the tests for accepting prophecy or anything as being from the Lord are far more stringent in the New Testament than they are in the Old Testament. Because now, prophetic statements and guidance have to pass the test, not just of the coming true or not leading you into idolatry, but now they must pass the test of being thoroughly biblical in every respect. Can you see and look how much of the Bible that we've got? So the test for someone claiming to be inspired by the Lord today is very much more stringent. It's certainly not a question of if he prophesies does it come true, uh, or sort of like, you know, well he's not actually, you know, he's not turning us into Mormons, is he? But you've got to look into him, and is there false teaching of any kind coming out, a far more stringent test. But we should expect that because we have the whole Bible. The Old Testament people didn't. Go to 1 Thessalonians, we'll see Paul talking about this. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 5 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and we'll start reading from verse 19 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 19 this is Paul writing to a church and he says do not quench the spirit do not quench the spirit and when you get that that's saying let the Holy Spirit have freedom in regards to gifts alright so do not quench the spirit do not despise prophesying i.e. allow it don't let fear of false prophecy getting through stop you stepping out alright so don't despise it okay but look what he says but test everything can you see test everything hold fast to what is good abstain from every form of evil can you see so now in the New Testament time everything has got to be tested and what's it tested by that it's conformity to the truth of the entire Word of God and its teaching and also the fruit of the life of the individual concerned alright so then what we're seeing here is quite basically that the Old Testament era was fundamentally different from the era in which we are in we are members of the body of Christ Old Testament saints weren't therefore guidance in the Old Testament as we're going to see worked in a different way than it does for us remember what we've seen the status of Elijah as an Old Testament man was that no church to be part of i.e. no body of Christ to be baptized into no completed scriptures therefore a hotline to God our status is we have the body of Christ that we're part of we have the completed scripture therefore we don't have a hotline to God now basically where we've come to so far is to simply say this <coughs> when it comes to guidance and the whole question of God guiding us and speaking to us we must not expect guidance to normatively be for us what it was for the Old Testament people Moses, David, you name them we must not expect guidance to normatively be for us what it was for them or come to think of it for the New Testament apostles and prophets because they didn't have the completed word of God okay now then what we're seeing here and here, here's a new word or right, I'll go a bit deep now all right got to work hard now what we're seeing here is the principle of what is called dispensation we're going to be looking tonight at dispensationalism now don't be put off by the word because all will be explained all right the Greek word that we're interested here and we're going to be seeing it in the New Testament is the Greek word oikonomia now it comes from two words oikos which means a house and nomos which is the Greek word for law so you've got literally the law of the house now what it signified in the Greek language was the management of a household it was how you managed your affairs concerning your household 
you know, managing the finances, making sure the dishes got washed up. It was family organisation, the running of a home. And then uh, it kind of came to mean management or administration in general, but always particularly of a property. So that what we've got in this word oikonomia, dispensation, is the idea of the management of a household, administration, management, but specifically of property. Now bear that in mind, okay, and just listen to this. Psalm 24 verse 1 reads this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. I'll read that again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Now, what that is saying is, the earth, physically, as a planet, plus everyone on it, is God's property. It's his. He owns it lock, stock and barrel. Now, go to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. And if you find verse 12, and we'll read from verse 7, Psalm 50, verse 7. And this is kind of a psalm of God prophetically talking to Israel, his people. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will accept no bull from your house, nor he goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and all that is in it is mine. Now, what we've established there is that planet Earth and all the people who live on it, Christians, unbelievers as well, everyone, are the property of God. So therefore, in the world, God is managing, he is administrating a, uh, a property, all right? And uh, dispensation, the reason that that word is used is because it means if you're managing a household, you have to have a long-term plan in order to manage it in a proper way. So this word dispensation comes in because it means the unfolding or the giving out bit by bit of the plan of management. Uh, the brains behind the plan, if you like. Now, dispensation, if you give something out, I mean, it's like you get dispensing machines on stations, got chocolate. Why are they called dispensing? Because to dispense, they give out. You put your money in, you pull the drawer, and it gives out, you know, you know the stuff that you want. So, therefore, if someone is executing a plan, what they've got to do is they've got to let out the bits of the plan that people need to know at any one time 
in order to manage the affairs properly on a long-term basis, alright? So that the picture we're getting in dispensation, this word oikonomia, the management of a household, the picture is quite simply this, you've got a property or a household, now it's not only yours now, it's going to be yours forever, you know, like for the rest of your life as it were. Now, managing that is not just a question of doing it day to day, you've got to do it long term. I mean, it's like, for instance, winter's coming, you might get snowed in, can't get to the shops, right, make sure there's extra food in. Can you see the principle? So therefore, dispensation means you have the manager who has the long term plan. You have the other people involved in that household who have to put that plan into action. Therefore, the manager gives out the specific items of information, the things that need to be done, he gives it out day to day, alright, and what is required is going to change according to the changing situation that comes upon you. So think of it quite simply, a manager of a business, what is he doing? He is day by day directing everyone in that business so that the way they're acting at any one time is best for the business and is best going to meet the long-term goals that the business has. So therefore the management have the plan, but they dispense that plan, they give out clues, they, right, now we do this, now we do that, now we do that, now we do this, can you see? And they dispense what needs to be done in order for the management of that household or business or firm to run smoothly. That is this word oikonomia, alright, in the Greek, dispensation. Really, we're talking about management. Now then, one of the principles of this, like you've got, you know, a manager of a firm. One of the principles uh, that is going to decide whether a management is good or bad is the principle, well, I mean, firstly, a management always has a goal in sight. When you get firms, a management, that have lost sight of their goals, I mean, eventually the firm goes downhill. So there's firstly always a long-term goal in sight. But the point is that in the unfolding of your plan, i.e. day-to-day, the way that you plan to reach that long-term goal, you see, the thing is, the situation in which you're in is always changing. There are always variables. I mean, at the moment, there's a slump in the business world. A few years ago, there was a boom. Can you see? Changing variables the whole time. So, therefore, a management has got to be flexible. A manage it's no use saying, well, ten years ago, we did it this way, and so we're always going to do it that way. Because if the situation in the markets changes and is different from how it was 10 years ago, if you manage in the present climate like you did 10 years ago, you'll go under. A management has got to be flexible. It's got to have the ability to change tactics in order to meet the need and the circumstances around them. I.e., if you're a manager of a business or whatever, you don't always do things exactly the same. You're flexible, you're prepared to change your tactics to meet the need. And that is why management that is inflexible goes to the wall. And that is why today the businesses that tend to do well, they need innovative 
people, people who are prepared to adapt to the circumstances. So therefore, one of the principles of management is you have a long-term goal or plan that you're working towards. But in order to get there, as you unfold that plan day by day, you've got to be flexible enough to change your tactics and approach to meet the changing situations around you. Now, basically, what we have here is that God is managing human affairs. God, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is the manager of human affairs, alright? And he has a long-term goal for human affairs. And he is working all the time to bring that plan into fullness so that his goal for humanity is eventually reached. Now this plan unfolds in a progressive way. The further through time you go, the later on in history you are, the more details you have of the plan. It unfolds in a progressive way, in stages. But also, because God is flexible and he's a good manager as opposed to a bad one, he varies his tactics according to the way that the situation changes as time goes by. Can you see? So God will, as the plan unfolds through human history, God will change the methods that he's using at any one time. Alright? And your understanding of that plan will depend on where you are in it. The Old Testament prophets, like Elijah, did not know anything as much as we do about it because we're later in history and we've got the entire scriptures. But God's plan of management of the human race unfolds in a progressive way and because circumstances change, God's methods of managing human affairs change as the situation changes. Bearing that in mind, go to Ephesians, and I want to show you now this actual word oikonomia, alright? Dispensation. This idea of God's progressively unfolding plan and the changing in methodology that he uses at certain points in the plan, okay? And in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, now, initially, find verse 9. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9. Now, what we're going to see here is that Paul, in these verses, talks about God's long plan, long-term plan. Ephesians 1 verse 9. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth now in there the word dispensation or oikonomia is the word plan Alright? So that what Paul is talking about here is he's saying that God has a long-term plan. 
his goal for which he is managing the human race towards is that everything in the universe plus everything in heaven is going to be united in Jesus. Now that is the long-term plan, that is the goal that God is working towards. Now as he executes that plan and the different stages of it unfold progressively, you're going to get differences in the way he manages his affairs or the human race at any one time. Now go, still in Ephesians, but go to chapter 3. <coughs> chapter 3. We've seen just now in chapter 1 that God's long-term plan is to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ. That is the goal that he's working towards. And all his management of the human race is all designed to bring that plan into, you know, sort of like reality. But when you've got a business, and you're working to long-time plans, you know, maybe you might think in 10 years we're going to up our growth by 70%. Now, in order to do that over the years, you've got to vary what you're doing at any one moment in order to get there. Now then, in Ephesians chapter 3, now we'll read verse 8. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan and there you've got the word again dispensation, oikodomia, right? not oikonomia, sorry he says to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden in ages in God who created all things that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now what Paul is talking about there, when he used this word plan the first time, he was talking about the eventual goal of it, uniting all things in Christ. When he uses it here, he's talking about not the fulfilment of God's plan, he's talking about the stage at which he was at in it and the stage of the unfolding of this plan at the point when Paul was writing was the revelation of the church and the way in which the principalities and powers were going to be defeated through the presence of the church on earth so what you've got in Ephesians 1 Paul is talking about the long-term goal here in chapter 3 he's talking about the actual place we are now the stage at which the plan is unfolding at the moment and the part that Paul was at he was saying we've just gone into a new phase as God's plan unfolds he's just played a, a fresh card he's just started to use a new tactic and the new tactic was that up until the time of Paul and Jesus there wasn't a church of Jesus Christ but now there is a church of Jesus Christ and can you see what Paul is doing he is announcing a change in the method that God is using to fulfill his plan. Basically here, in the Old Testament, by and large, the method was the people of Israel. But now the method is the church of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that he's saying that we are at this time 
in what you would call the church dispensation of history. Now, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a run-through, thumbnail sketch, to try and show you the various dispensations that have occurred throughout history. And what we're going to be looking for is the way that as God's plan unfolds through history, you get phases, you get a period of time where the method changes. And then later on, it changes again. And then later on, it changes again. You get all these different phases of the unfolding of God's plan. Let's, let's actually give you an idea, alright. I would say that dispensation, number one, okay, was quite simply from creation to Adam and Eve and the fall. So dispensation number one, God creates the universe, the heavens and the earth, Adam and Eve, and then you have a period of time from then up until when Adam and Eve fell into sin. Now, in that dispensation, at that point in history, all right, you had physical contact between human beings and God, and the human beings were living in the Garden of Eden, in paradise. Now then, once Adam and Eve fell, another dispensation came in. The circumstances suddenly changed. So God changes his method of meeting the new situation. You then get the fall to Noah's flood. And that is a dispensation. And what you've got here is physical contact with God has gone. He's no longer walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. And they have been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So can you see a change? No more physical contact with God. And whereas they were in the Garden of Eden, now they're out. Now then, you then get the period of history from the flood to Abraham. Now what happened immediately after the flood? God introduces the idea of government, human government. Capital punishment is introduced. You see, up until the flood, God policed the human race. He did it himself. But once the flood came, God said, now you police yourselves. You have government, you have authority. And when someone steps out of authority, say and murder someone, human authority must rectify the crime. So the responsibility for policing the world is now thrown at human beings. Whereas before, God had done it himself. So capital punishment comes in. Also, the Lord says, now you start eating meat. Because up until the flood, it was vegetarianism. Now God says you eat meat. Now, can you see what's happening? God is changing his methods. As the plan unfolds, as different stages in the development of the plan are reached, the methods that God uses changes. Right, so that's the flood to Abraham. Government is introduced, capital punishment, meat eating. And obviously one, you know, one could list 50 things in each of these, you know, the changes that happen, but I'm just giving you a thumbnail step. A sketch. Next, you get the dispensation of Abraham to Moses. Abraham to Moses. Um, now then, what's singular about that? Well, from Abraham to Moses, you have the appearance of the people of God, Israel. Now, in the unfolding of God's plan, up to now, he hasn't used a particular people. God doesn't have a nation. Now he says, right, I'm going to bring a nation into being. So then you enter into the dispensation of Israel. The people of God corporately appear. 
then you get the dispensation from Moses to Jesus. Now what was that dispensation? That was the dispensation of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was introduced and that governed everything from Moses onwards. Now, what was the Mosaic law there for? It was to show people that they were sinners. Can you see? Because you couldn't live up to the law. Can you see? And again, God is unfolding his plan. So then, then you get the dispensation from Jesus to the rapture. Now, what dispensation is that? You have salvation and the church. We are now in the church dispensation of God's plan. Israel has been cut out and the church has replaced her. But then, after the rapture, what do you get then? You get the dispensation from the rapture to the second coming. What happens there? Well, blow me down, Israel are restored again. Out goes the church, church age over, in comes Israel again. And the world is evangelized through Israel. And then, after the second coming, you've got the millennium, alright, what is that dispensation? That is the dispensation of the kingdom of God. Jesus ruling from Jerusalem. And all the promises in the Old Testament to Israel literally fulfilled. Alright? Now then, what happens after that? The universe is destroyed and you get the final judgment. All the unbelievers throughout history thrown into the lake of fire. God creates a new universe and a new planet earth and heaven heaven which is outside of the universe lands on planet earth what have you then got you've then got the only two places that exist the universe and heaven all right heaven has come inside the universe what is outside of the universe the lake of fire with satan and the demons and unbelievers throughout history what have you got in the universe everything is united in Christ everything everything in the universe is united in Jesus you have the fulfillment God has at last reached his plan he's fulfilled it can you see because everything on heaven and earth will be united in Christ so there you have God reaching his goal it's finished he's done it he's got there plan fulfilled mission accomplished but can you get the idea that as history unfolds, he changes the <coughs> methods that he's using at any one time in history according to which dispensation he is working in at any one time. All right. Now, that's a thumbnail sketch, but it does give you the idea. And can you see that God's modus operandi as the manager of human affairs changes and varies depending on what stage of his unfolding plan he is at at any one time. Or to put it another way, depending on what dispensation we're in. Now we are in the church dispensation. We are at the point in God's plan where his management of planet Earth and human affairs is principally through the uh, tool of the Church of Jesus Christ. So we are in the New Testament Church dispensation. But the prophets, where were they? They were in the Old Testament dispensation. And therefore the rules at that point in God's plan were slightly different than they are for us today. And in the Old Testament dispensation 
the rule, the method that God used for guiding people was a hotline to God. That was the normative method of guidance in the Old Testament dispensation. In the New Testament dispensation, guidance is not normatively through that method. God's method in the church dispensation is normatively through the combination of the completed word of God and your fellowship with other believers in the body of Christ. So what we've got so far is simply this. For Elijah in the Old Testament dispensation, guidance was via a hotline to God. For us in the New Testament dispensation, guidance is not normatively like that at all. For us, it is normatively the Word of God and fellowship by being part of the church. So that's the fundamental difference between us and Elijah. But notice that I said normatively. I have not excluded the possibility of God guiding people at any time in a similar way to which he did with um, Elijah. Now, you see, there's a fundamental problem with this whole idea of dispensationalism that I've now put before you, all right? And the problem is that it can be taken too far. It can be taken too far. You can actually read in, you know, sort of like the writings of some Bible teachers that they're, of, you know, of, you know, that they say there are virtually as many dispensations as they care for there to be and they've got kind of dispensations all over the place or something like this. You know, and we're in the fourth or fifth uh, dispensation within the church dispensation. It, it, it really can go absolutely uh, crazy because uh, you can put more into this idea than the Bible actually does. Um, I mean, what you've done tonight is you've discovered that I am a dispensationalist, all right? Now, it might be new to you, but I am a convinced dispensationalist. And incidentally, let me say as well, it's for that reason why I personally completely reject the majority teaching amongst spirit-filled Christians today of the idea that the church has replaced Israel full stop. Most Bible teachers today in the churches, you'll find that their position is that, 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 that Israel is out for good, total out. The church has replaced Israel totally. The church is going to usher in the second coming. And uh, all the prophets in, you know, in the Old Testament about this great day of glory coming for Israel are all kind of spiritual parables they apply to the church. And it's a picture of the church taking over the whole world. Now, let me say that the reason that that teaching is so common today is the failure of Christians to understand properly this teaching, this principle in the Bible of dispensationalism. Just go to, to, to Timothy and a little something that Timothy says about the responsibility of uh, people to, you know, in, in how they approach the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. And uh, he, he says this. Ah, chapter 2 verse 15. He says this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need 
to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now there, when Paul says this thing about rightly handling the word of truth, the, uh, the Greek word there is orthotomio, and it means to cut straight, it means to cut a straight line. And the idea that Paul is talking about there is the idea of as you approach the Bible, you've got to trace out all the themes that run through the Bible. All the teachings in it, you've got to get each one in its right place and in its proper context. I mean, it's like, for instance, in verse 14, all right, look at this. We've got, remind them of this and charge them before the Lord to avoid disputing about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. And then in verse 16, uh, he says, avoid godless chatter, for it will lead people to more and more ungodliness. And there, Paul is warning them about the danger of words, 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 which may sound very spiritual, but there's no truth in them, because it's taking things that the Bible says completely out of context. I people talking religiously, but what they're saying doesn't tally with what the Bible teaches in its broadest sense. And Paul's saying there, look, you know, that is just all, all, all wind. So that what Paul is saying here, all right, to Timothy, he says, look, in your Bible teaching, you are responsible to make sure that you are studying and understanding and teaching the Bible in its kind of entirety so that you're not taking any one truth out and overemphasizing it at the expense of other truth and you've got to make sure that there aren't great principles that you're missing out and not applying otherwise what you're going to do is you're going to end up well a few weeks ago we saw the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth didn't we and this is what paul is saying everything in the bible has got to be taken in its context therefore <coughs> if somebody was to do a talk about guidance and there are Christians who teach this you get up in the morning you, you settle down before the Lord you have a pen and paper and an open Bible you kind of, you know, speak in tongues for a while and clear your head so that your head is empty God will give you the guidance of the day by putting thoughts in your mind. So you write them down and there you go. That's what God's saying to you that morning. Now, many Christians teach that. Now then, what? Why is it that if, if, if someone is saying that is how Christians are to be guided, why is that statement wrong? Why is that irresponsible Bible teaching? I'll tell you. Because it's taking the method that God used with the Old Testament prophets and applying it to today, to every believer all the time, without taking into account that the Bible shows us that God's methods change depending on what era of dispensation you are in. That is the important thing, rightly dividing the word of truth. You've got to trace it out. Only then is the teaching that you give going to really be helpful, or you're just going to lead people into, you know, kind of, you know, deception all over the place. Now, let me say, uh, you know, I mean, you've discovered tonight that I am a dispensationalist. Now, let me say that that makes me a statistical oddity, 
amongst Bible teachers. And the reason it makes me a statistical oddity amongst Bible teachers is for the simple reason that I personally am baptised with the Spirit and I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Now that is why being a dispensationalist makes me kind of an oddity. Because the majority of Spirit-filled Christians completely reject the idea of dispensationalism, alright? If you want to get good teaching on dispensationalism, don't go to spirit-filled Christians. Go to Christians who completely reject it, ignore everything they say about the gifts of the Spirit, but a lot of what they teach about dispensations is very, very good. Spirit-filled Christianity has rejected dispensationalism. And I just want to explain to you why. There is a reason why, and I suppose it's kind of vaguely understandable, alright. Now then, it's because of this. A belief amongst dispensationalists has been around for a very long time, and it's this, alright? A lot of Christians who believe, uh, as I do, that there are dispensations in the Bible, a lot of them teach that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and all supernatural guidance in any form they say that that was only for the age of Jesus and the Apostles. So what they've got is that in the church age, which started obviously from Pentecost onwards, what they say is that the first 400 years were a special dispensation and we've now passed out of it. So they say the gifts of the Spirit were only for the beginning of the Christian church but now, because we're further on into the Christian church dispensation, the gifts of the Spirit are no longer for today. And their argument is simply this. They say the early church didn't have the completed New Testament. Absolutely true, they didn't. So, these people say, therefore, God gave them the gifts of the Spirit and supernatural guidance instead. And so they go on to say that once the New Testament was completed and compiled and available, alright, therefore the gifts and supernatural guidance ceased completely. So what they've got is a little dispensation within a dispensation. Can you see what I mean? Now, let me say, that is utterly wrong. It's utterly wrong. And you see, the irony is, they say that the early church had miracles and supernatural guidance and gifts of the Spirit, but they didn't have the Bible. We have the completed New Testament, therefore the gifts of the Spirit are gone. Now, the irony is, it's precisely because we've got the completed New Testament that we know that they are wrong. Because the New Testament teaches that the gifts of the Spirit are normative throughout the church age, alright? But therefore, can you see what's happened? Because spirit-filled Christians have been very aware that the greatest critics amongst Christians of the baptism with the Spirit are dispensationalists, therefore they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Can you see what I mean? So that because dispensationalists say the gifts of the Spirit aren't for today, spirit-filled Christians who use the gifts of the Spirit say, well, that's a load of rubbish, isn't it? They're completely wrong, therefore their dispensationalism must be wrong. So it's a kind of a swing of the pendulum. But let me say that it's not that dispensationalism is wrong, it's not, it's absolutely right. But it can be taken too far, and indeed it has been taken 
far too far, all right? So that is why I'm an oddity. I am a spirit-filled dispensationalist who speaks in tongues. Because the traditional position of dispensationists have been that they reject the gifts of the spirit for the reason that, you know, I've said, they've got a little dispensation uh, right at the beginning of church history, uh, if you like, the dispensation of the apostles, now, obviously, it was a unique time because the apostles were writing the scriptures, but they say the gifts of the Spirit, supernatural guidance was for then only. It doesn't happen today. Now, I am a dispensationist, but I reject that belief. They're taking a perfectly biblical idea too far. They're taking it actually against what the Bible says. So, uh, therefore, I'm quite happy to be a Spirit-filled, tongue-speaking dispensationist. You know, it's, it's the only way. It's absolutely brilliant. Now... Now, I want to go back to what I was saying earlier. What we were seeing is that in the Old Testament, under that dispensation, guidance was normatively a hotline to God. We're establishing, or going to establish, or keep establishing all the way through this series, that for us in the New Testament church dispensation, that guidance is not normatively like that at all. Guidance for us is normatively through the Word of God and our corporate fellowship together. But let me say at this point that I have not said that revelational guidance, what I'm going to call revelational guidance, i.e. the Word of the Lord came to me, I am not saying that that never happens. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that in the Old Testament dispensation it was virtually the only way it could happen. It was normal then. For us it isn't normal, but I want to emphasise that I'm not saying that it doesn't happen like that ever. For us today in the church dispensation, supernatural guidance is the exception and not the norm. Now, for the Old Testament dispensation it was the norm and not the exception. For us it is the exception but not the norm. Now, where you've got to be so careful about the whole subject of guidance in, you know, amongst spirit-filled, you know, churches today, is that many teach on guidance as if revelational guidance, the word of the Lord came to me stuff, they teach that as if that is normative guidance. Can you see? And that is the great danger about guidance. So many people talk of this hotline to God as if they've got it all the time and it's normal. Now I want to say right here and now, and I do this on the authority, not of my opinions, but the Bible, I tell you here and now they are kidding themselves. They are deceiving both themselves and other people. Alright? So, when you get Christians representing the spirit, uh, representing the position that for them guidance is normatively with uh, the word of the Lord came to me, i.e. God speaking directly to you in some supernatural manner, I am maintaining that anyone who maintains that that is normal guidance is kidding themselves and deceiving other people. And let me prove that to you in one simple statement or a question. Why would the New Testament tell us to test everything if Christians had a hotline to God? You see, if a Christian had a hotline to God, who'd need to test it? 
Elijah didn't have to test his hotline to God, as we're going to see. He didn't have to run off to people and say, well, look, test this, check this out, check this out. Because he had a hotline to God. So there are no hotlines to God in that sense because the Bible tells us to test everything, which would be a nonsense if revelational guidance was flying around all over the place and God was speaking to people directly, supernaturally, all the time. The very idea is a nonsense. So what we're going to move on to now is ask, right, so what of guidance for us now? What do we say at this point in the series about guidance as it relates for us now? Now there are two basic things. For you and I, guidance is normally, normally going to come via one of two ways or probably a mixture of both. It will be a mixture of both. Number one, the Bible. Alright? Simply learning what the Bible teaches. Number two, it's going to come through the church of which we are a part and it's going to come from believers who we know and trust from churches other than our own. Can you see? So basically for us, guidance is going to come normatively through a mixture of understanding the teaching of the Bible and other believers whom we know and trust. But obviously, principally, the believers in our own church, because we see most of them, but also from believers we know and trust who are from other churches. All right. So then, the key to understanding this aspect is simply this. I'm going to make statements. You cannot, you dare not trust yourself to know God's will solely on your own. I know that I can't. And I have proved that again and again and again and again. I'll repeat that. You cannot trust yourself. You dare not trust yourself to know God's will solely on your own. I know that I can't. You see, our hearts are deceitful and our hearts are wicked. I.e., your heart, my heart, is poor on truth, our hearts are not very hot on truth, are they? And they are full of ulterior motives. Now the great temptation when it comes to guidance is quite simply to hear what you want to hear. Can you see? Now as long as that's the case about us, we really cannot trust ourselves. Now then, let me break this down a bit more, two other points. Guidance is going to come, is, is, breaks down into two component parts. Part one <coughs> is objective guidance. Alright, I'll explain that in a minute. The second component part of guidance is subjective guidance, or what I'm going to call revelational guidance. So, guidance, two types. Objective guidance, secondly, subjective guidance or revelational guidance, as I'm going to call it. Now then, objective guidance is simply this. It is guidance that you receive because it is written down black and white in the Bible. That's what I mean by objective guidance. 
Objective guidance is simply that you need guidance on something. Well, it so happens that the Bible actually tells you about exactly that same thing, so now you know what to do, don't you? Examples. Questions concerning guidance. Uh, should I get baptised? Is the Lord now? This is a question. Is the Lord leading me to get baptised? Well, the answer: Yeah, he's commanding you to get baptised. Nothing to pray about, is it? If you're a believer, you get baptised. Uh, question: Oh, you know, does God want me to marry this person who isn't a Christian? Well, no. Of course, it's objective guidance. You don't have to pray about it. The Bible says that believers mustn't marry unbelievers. Uh, here's another one. This is all objective guidance. Uh, I'm a bank robber. Now, I've got converted. Does God want me to change jobs? <laughs> Do you see? Objective guidance. You don't need to pray about that. You find the answer out for that guidance simply from the black and white pages of the Bible. Um, or, is, is, is God leading me into a missionary to Africa? I mean, I'll have to leave my wife and children at home. You know, they'll be unprovided for. I'll be in Africa. My wife and kids will be at home. Is God leading me into that ministry? Well, the answer is no, because your first responsibility is to your wife and family. If God wants you in a ministry in Africa, he'll get your wife and children there as well, won't he? You see? So, objective guidance. Um, oh, this, this conviction that I've got that, you know, that, that, that I'm not supposed to eat meat. Oh, is that from the Lord? Well, no, because the Bible says eat meat. <laughs> you see? Uh, what else? Uh, yeah, I mean, does... Does the, you know, I mean, I'm supposed to go to work today, but I, I wonder if God's leading me to stay at home and have the day in prayer instead. Can you see objective guidance? You know what the Bible teaches. You have a responsibility to your employer. Are you getting the point when it comes to objective guidance? All these things are absolutely straightforward. There is no praying or seeking the Lord necessary to finding out what God's guidance is in situations such as them that I've quoted and indeed a million others for the simple reason it's all in the Bible you don't have to pray, you don't have to go, you know, pray for me, you know, that Lord has shown me what his will is <laughs> read the Bible, it's there in the Bible, can you see? Um, and again we're back to the importance of knowing the Bible aren't we? you know, because I mean you're only going to know that it's wrong to marry an unbeliever if you know the Bible you know, you're only going to know it's wrong to be a bank robber if you know the Bible. You know, do you get the point? And many Christians are quite irresponsible in all this. You know, quite irresponsible. I mean, you know, the number of believers, you know, like, oh, God's told me it's okay to marry him. I know he's an unbeliever, but I've got peace about it. I've got peace about it. I've prayed about it. Can you see? Now, that is utter irresponsibility. The Bible says you don't do it, all right? So that is objective guidance. Have you thoroughly understood what I mean now by objective guidance? Now what we've got to move on is to subjective guidance, or what I call revelational guidance. Now this is quite different, quite different. And it boils down to this. The Bible tells you that you can only marry a Christian. That's objective guidance. Uh, but it doesn't tell you which one to marry, does it? Now that is subjective guidance or revelational guidance. Can you see the thing? It's quite different. Uh, the Bible tells you that you can only have honourable employment. You know, I mean, you can't be a stripper. 
you know, I mean, Andy, I'm sorry, that application for the Chippendales, you're just going to have to scrap the whole idea. Um, or, or, for instance, you, you know, the Bible, to, you, know, you, you know you can't be a bank robber, because that goes against... But the point is, the Bible tells you that your occupation, your job, must be an honourable job, but the Bible doesn't tell you which job, does it? Uh, the Bible doesn't tell you where to live. The Bible doesn't tell you what your gift or ministry is. It just gives you an idea of what the options are. But what God's actually got for you, you're not going to find that out through the Bible. Can you see, all these types of things are beyond the Bible's general scope, i.e. you cannot turn up chapter and verse to get the answer. You know, I mean, it's like, say, you know, say boy meets girl. You know, and I mean, the relationship goes well, and oh, you know, is the Lord is the Lord leading us into marriage? What does the Bible say? Well, I'm afraid the Bible simply says, are you both believers? You both disciples? You establish from the Bible, yeah. Well, we meet that criteria. Well, beyond that, the question: Should this particular bloke marry this particular girl? It's no use coming and say, Beresford, have you got a verse that tells us whether we're meant to or not? Because obviously, the Bible doesn't work like that. So that is what I mean about revelational guidance. It is something that the Lord does give to us, but it's something that we need to understand about. Now, my main beef about this whole area of revelational guidance, or kind of the Lord speaking to us personally and directly, my main beef about that whole area isn't that it doesn't happen, because it does happen, and I believe in it. I believe in it, all right? Uh, my beef is the hyped-up drama and hysteria that Christians have managed to surround it with. Yeah, yeah. That is my beef with revelational guidance. You know, voices thundering from heaven, uh, miracles of guidance daily before breakfast. And then, of course, God's spoken to you again before he leavens this, hasn't he? Can you see uh, kind of confirmations flying around all over the place, like, you know, like leaves in, you know, in an autumn hurricane? That is when revelational guidance starts to go wrong. People are just so, one, dramatic about it, and two, they're stupid about it. Now, I'm going to give you some for examples. I simply ask you to take on faith that they're not as daft as they seem. I know you're going to laugh, but they're not as daft as they seem, because I've come across similar ones ages, you know, so many times. How about this? The Lord's told me that he's going to give me a Volvo, and I walked out the front door this morning, and there was one over the road. Oh, the Lord's confirmed it. You know, can you see the mentality behind that? Uh, oh, God told me that I'm going to marry so-and-so. Oh, he did, I know he did. And then the next day, she came up and she spoke to me. Oh, well, it must be right. God's confirmed it, hasn't he? You know, are you getting the idea? Uh, you know, oh, God's led me to be an Anglican priest. And the next day, my wife bought a frock. <laughs> must be right, mustn't it? You know, can you get the idea? This, this, this kind of rather ridiculous mentality that lies behind so much claimed revelational guidance. I, God's told me this, that, the other, you name it, God's told me, alright. Now, let me tell you that if one wants to talk about super duper dramatic, I heard the voice of God and oh I had a vision and really miraculous confirmation of guidance, alright, that whole thing I have experienced that. 
about, well, I mean, it's difficult, maybe 20 times in over 20 years of following the Lord? Does that put it in perspective for you a little bit? Um, the trouble is that many Christians, <coughs> after following the Lord for about 15 years or so, they claim to have had more of that kind of thing than, 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 than the combined corporate experience of everyone in the Old and New Testament added together. Let me tell you something about the Bible. You might not have thought about it like this, but I want you to pull together everything you know about the Bible, just, just in your mind, put it into focus, alright? Let me put this to you. Is it not true that what strikes you about the Bible isn't how commonplace the miraculous and supernatural is? Does it not strike you how exceptional miracles are in the Bible and supernatural guidance? Hey, look at the size of this book. Look at the amount of history that it covers. If you read through the Bible, what will strike you isn't miracles on every page. It will be the number of pages you turn before you get to the next one. Do you see the point? So that even as far as the Bible is concerned, supernaturalism, i.e. that direct miraculous intervention by God and God speaking to us supernaturally, biblically, that is not statistically the norm at all. <coughs> now remember, I'm not saying that revelational guidance doesn't happen. I'm saying that it does. But I'm also saying that no Christian has got a hope of being open to receive it whenever it's necessary in the proper way if their head is full of some of the rubbish that goes around in Christians thinking about it today. Because you would not believe the lunacy that is going on in some churches. Because somebody says, well, God told me. Is he? And we're back to this problem of the old hotline to God. So that what we've established fundamentally today is that as we're going to go through this series on Elijah, we're going to be seeing, amongst many other things, we're going to be seeing principles that are going to help us to understand the whole subject of guidance. But what I've chiefly concentrated on tonight is to simply show you that because Elijah was part of the Old Testament dispensation and we are part of the New Testament church dispensation, we've got to realise that when it comes to guidance, what was normative for him is not normative for us. And I've explained to you the reason why that is. Elijah, as a prophet in the Old Testament, was not baptised by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Why not? Well, because the body of Christ didn't exist. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, had not at that time become a human being. Therefore, Elijah was not part of the body of Christ, and he didn't have the completed New Testament <coughs> scriptures. Therefore, that being the situation that he was in at that part of the unfolding of God's plan at that period of history, 
Therefore, normatively, guidance for prophets had to be a hotline to God. And that is why you get the word of the Lord came to me all over the place. You know? You know that God would speak face to face. God spoke with Moses face to face. Now then again, I'm not saying that that has not happened ever in the church age because I've read of believers who have experienced that very thing. Who have spoken to God face to face. But let not any one of us here think that somehow, or if we believe hard enough, that that's going to happen to us at some point in our life. It is a total exception. God is free to do it if he wants, but let's not expect that anything like that is going to be the norm. It's not. So therefore, for Elijah, when it came to guidance, no body of Christ, no completed scriptures, therefore hotline to God. That was the norm. For us, when it comes to guidance, and lots of other things as well, but particularly guidance, the position we're in, as being in the dispensation of the church, is quite simply this. We are baptised into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are in relationship with our brothers and sisters. We are, in a way, mysteriously, spiritually bonded together by the Holy Spirit. So we're part of the Church of Jesus Christ and we have the completed scriptures. Therefore, for us, guidance will most certainly not, normatively, be hotline to God. It's as simple as that. Now then, we're going to say a lot more as we go through this series about normative guidance, all right, uh, for us. But uh, we'll leave it here, all right, for, for you and I as believers. And uh, yeah, there are times when God will speak directly and supernaturally, and we're going to see that as we go through this series. But let's underline in our hearts that for you and I, guidance is going to normatively be a mixture of the following and if you serve well I mean for myself I mean you know I mean how can I say 20 or 30 times this revelational guidance uh, that has proved to have been true I mean I've had countless uh, examples of what I thought was revelational guidance at the time but subsequently discovered that it was just my old heart deceiving me but I would say that probably in the 30 year in the 20 years that I've been following the Lord put revelational guidance that was genuine a maximum of 30, somewhere between 20 and 30 times, alright? So don't expect it every day, whatever you do. For you and I, guidance is normatively, daily, going to be a mixture of the following. And you've got to put all these together and your guidance will become clearer. Growing in knowledge of the Bible, number one. Underline that, growing in your knowledge of the Bible. Number two, common sense. And I put that as number two for the simple reason that if you haven't got common sense, you can read the Bible all you like and you're going to deceive yourself. Mm. You see? Because a lot of these people, Christians, with really weird ideas about guidance, they're always reading the Bible, but they haven't got any common sense. They're not rightly dividing the word of truth. So, you've got to grow in the knowledge of the Bible. You've got to have a bit of sanctified common sense and not be too gullible. Thirdly, talking things over with your brothers and sisters. Whatever area of life it is where you need guidance, 
chat it over with your brothers and sisters. Doesn't mean you've got to do whatever they say. Chat it open, it over with them. Use use them as a sounding board. See what comeback you get. Uh, number four, biding your time. Oh, we're really going to see that when it comes to guidance, there's no hurry. In fact, being in a hurry when it comes to guidance is going to guarantee that you end up going down the wrong road. There is no hurry. And whenever you get people, oh, but I've got to know, I've got to get guidance, I've got to know, that is sheer unbelief. That's someone panicking. That's someone who thinks that, you know, like guidance, is that if you, if you kind of shout loud enough at God, he'll give you what you want. So when it comes to guidance, bide your time. There's no hurry, none at all. Then you've got the still small voice of inner conviction and peace. Now we'll see more about that later on. And uh, ultimately it's going to boil down to a quiet, confident knowing born of having shared it with other people prayerfully and praying about it yourself. That, put those things together, if, if you live out your Christian life in that way, then you'll find that guidance will quite simply take care of itself through those particular things. But uh, as we move on through this uh, series, we will see more specific things uh, about guidance. So consider tonight, when it comes to guidance within this series, tonight is kind of like the introduction to that aspect of, uh, you know, the things that we're going to see in the series. So, well, we... <laughs> 1 Kings 17, we've, we've had three studies and we've done the first two verses. So we're making very slow progress, but uh, we are making very thorough progress with Elijah. So uh, we will move on next time.